Welcome to What She Said, A Thrill of Hope. I'm Amanda Wood, and this is for Saturday, December 24th, and Sunday, December 25th. Merry Christmas! Welcome to the final podcast for A Thrill of Hope. I cannot express how grateful I am and amazed I am at all the people who have tuned in this Advent season. I I thank all of you so much. It's been so worthwhile for me to do this podcast, to do the research, to share it with you. And I just really hope that it's added to your consideration of Jesus and all that he has done this Christmas season. So for today, on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we are going to look at Jesus as our Passover lamb. I'm going to focus on Exodus 12 um, from the beginning, 1 through verse 13. There's a lot more context to all of this throughout the entire Exodus story, but just for our purposes, that's what I'll um, read to you now. So Exodus 12, 1 through 13. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire." its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment." I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the immediate context of this passage is the Hebrew people have been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. They arrived in Egypt because Jacob and his sons joined Joseph there after he revealed himself to them as Pharaoh's right-hand man when they went in search of food during the famine. Now the Hebrew people have grown in great numbers, and God is about to deliver them from their bondage and make them a great nation his nation to work through, to send the Savior through, and to show himself to the world through. He does all of this at Mount Sinai by the Mosaic Covenant once he has them safely out of Egypt, and that is where they become Israel. 
When we arrive in chapter 12, God has already enacted nine of the ten plagues against Egypt, and he has warned Moses of the final plague to come, the death of the firstborn. The Hebrew people, which is Israel, was the firstborn of God. And if Egypt wasn't going to release God's firstborn, he was going to require payment of their own firstborns. God begins in this passage that we looked at in the beginning of chapter 12 by giving a new calendar and a set of instructions for the Hebrew people. First, he says, a new year begins now. Formerly, a new year began in the month of Tishri, which is our September. But now, for the Jewish calendar, a new year begins in Nisan, which is comparative to our March or April in our calendar. It moves around because the Jewish calendar is lunar, whereas the our modern calendar is solar, and there are less days in the Jewish calendar. So their days do not always line up with our days. And if you never knew this, that's why the date of Easter moves around. Easter is always the same date in the Jewish calendar, um, but that moves around. Well, it's not really Easter in the Jewish calendar. It's Passover in the Jewish calendar, but that corresponds to how we set Easter. So it moves around in our calendar because we don't have the same cycle as they do. A Jewish New Year is called Rosh Hashanah, and that's where this is established as being in um, March or April at this point. Now, you may note that Rosh Hashanah is actually taking place in September and that part of the year now. And there is actually some debate in the Jewish um, world about whether or not, among rabbis, about whether or not it should actually be that way or if it should actually be in March, April, as it's set here in Exodus. So God goes on to tell them that the 10th day of the month of Nisan, the 10th day of the first month, they have a job to do. The 10th day of the first month is known as the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. Once the law is established, this will be the day that the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the sacrificial blood on the Ark of the Covenant. This symbolizes the covering of the sins of Israel. Also, interestingly, to me anyway, one of the most complete biblical timeline chronologies that was ever compiled was by Bishop James Usher in the 1600s. He dates the day of the fall of Adam and Eve to the 10th day of creation because that's the day that God sacrificed the first animal to cover the sins of Adam and Eve by clothing them. I completely buy into this idea that God chose the 10th day of the first month as the day of atonement to line up with the original shedding of blood to cover sin. Also, I'm a little surprised it took Adam and Eve four whole days from their creation to sin. So, on this 10th day, each Hebrew family is to get a lamb without blemish and allow it to live in the family home for four days as part of the family, sort of like a pet. Then, on the 14th day, they are to sacrifice this lamb, which will be mourned at this point. It would be cherished as part of the family. This lamb, um, the Hebrew word can, that is used here can refer to a young sheep or a young goat, must be without blemish, which is even the smallest deformity or defect. Anything but perfection would make it unfit to be the sacrifice for that family. So they're to live with this lamb for four days, and then on the fourth day, on the 14th, they are to kill the lamb at twilight, which is 3 p.m. The only part of the sacrifice God asked for was the blood applied on three sides of the doorway of the house, each side and the top. The rest of the lamb was meant to be roasted in fire, actually touching the flames, and then be eaten by the family in one sitting or destroy the parts that you can't eat. 
You would see this blood that you apply to the doorway every time you exit or enter your home. So we see here that the blood of the Passover lamb was meant to be remembered. Furthermore, the instructions go on to say that they are to eat this lamb while fully dressed and ready to travel. This symbolizes their trust that the deliverance that God was promising them would in fact come to pass. Do all of this right and God would spare the firstborn of the household because the angel of death would pass over the house. By now, I hope you're picking up on a few parallels between this story and what we are going to talk about today. This entire process from the Hebrews was a foreshadowing of God sending his son, Jesus, as the final and full Passover lamb. As in Egypt, the sin was great and payment must be required. The punishment was to be death, but a Savior came to spare us from that death. This Savior came as a cherished baby and lived among us before being slaughtered, spilling his blood as a covering for our sin. Jesus was spotless. He was not stained or blemished by sin or spiritual imperfection. Jesus is recorded as having expired on the cross at twilight, which is 3 p.m. In his death, he was touched by the fire of God's wrath. Additionally, as another comparison to the lamb, his work must be received fully. We cannot select the parts we like and discard the rest or save some of it for later, just as the Hebrew people had to consume the entire lamb in one sitting. Jesus is recorded also as being killed at Passover. We also must receive the covering of his blood fully. We must ready ourselves because we have full faith that we will receive the deliverance he has promised by that blood, just as the Hebrews had to eat their meal ready to go and ready to travel. Most importantly, the work of Jesus as our sacrifice was the beginning of our story of freedom, just as the sacrificial lamb was the beginning of the Hebrews walking out of Egypt and into the life and land which God had promised for them. 1 Corinthians 5-7 says, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. John one twenty nine goes on to compare Christ to the sacrificial lamb, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Throughout the New Testament, we see these references back to the Passover to illustrate Jesus as the Passover lamb. For Israel to be saved from the angel of death, they had to follow the exact instructions as given by God. Deviating from his path in any way to follow their own ideas would end in certain death. There was no other way to go about this, no matter how anyone might feel about that fact. The blood of the lamb is essential. Furthermore, an intellectual agreement about the blood is not sufficient. Without action and obedience, it profits nothing, and death will still come for you. Another wonderful illustration we see in this Passover story is an allusion to the future inclusion of Gentiles in God's plan. If you look ahead to Exodus 12:38, it says, A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. This verse means that Egyptians were also welcome to follow God's commands, sacrifice the lamb, place the blood on the door, and save their firstborn, and follow the Hebrews and their God out of Egypt. And they did. They were a mixed multitude when they departed Egypt, not just Hebrew people, but Egyptians as well. 
we see here that God's provision has never just been about Israel. They were the nation he chose to use, but he has always been for everyone, for all of us. All throughout the Old Testament, we see Gentiles grafted into the promises of Israel, and many Gentile women, such as Ruth, are part of the Messianic line. Exodus 12.14 goes on to explain how the great protection and provision of God must be remembered yearly throughout the generations by the observance of Passover, which began on Nisan 10, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was eaten on Nisan 14 to line up with the very first Passover's instructions. Passover was the great redemptive work of the Old Testament. That's the perfect parallel to the redemption of Christ on the cross, which was the great redemptive work of the New Testament and of all of human history. Passover was a shadow, a foreshadowing of what was to come in God's great redemptive plan for the world. He was going to do it through Israel, through their line, but it was going to be for all of us, the sacrificial blood of the Lamb. It may seem weird to you for me to end an Advent study on Christmas with all of this talk of blood and death, but I see it as the whole purpose of the Christmas story. God came down in the form of a baby to live with us, identify with us, and ultimately die for us. Why was this death necessary? To cover the sins of the world. In the Old Testament, God established the Mosaic Covenant, and in it, a system of substitutionary atonement, a sacrifice to make up for man's inability to keep the fullness of the law required for the holiness of God. Sacrifice had been offered to God since the time of Adam and Eve. We see Cain and Abel making their own sacrifices to the Lord early in Genesis. But the creation of Israel and the law was where God really laid out the rules for what this sacrificial system would look like going forward and how it must be exacted. The sacrificial system was imperfect, but it was imperfect by design. The entire Old Testament law was purposed to illustrate the need for something better, something more full and more complete, which was to come. Animal sacrifice was never capable of redeeming sin. It was always a band-aid. A perfect sacrifice needed to be made. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. That perfect sacrifice was Jesus. Another sinful man couldn't do it, for only perfection can offer a permanent payment. An animal offered temporary coverage, which had to be repeated forever. If you choose to forgo the salvation offered by Jesus, you will sacrifice for your own sin eternally in hell. It is only a perfect sacrifice which can cover sin once and for all. And it wasn't until God became a man that we had that perfect sacrifice available to us. He had to become a man for several reasons. First, God can't die, so he can't be sacrificed as God completely to pay for our sins. He had to become a man to be capable of dying at all. Second, man is the responsible party for sin. Therefore, God cannot take on the responsibility for that sin, but God-man can. 
First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He could take on our sin and pay the penalty for it because he was a man, and he could do it just once because he was perfect, the just for the unjust. Additionally, God needed to have our nature to become a link for man. Jesus had to be both to connect us to God and become our mediator in heaven, ruling earth alongside the Father. As God and man, he is our true representative. He identifies with us, knows our struggles, knows our fears, knows our trials, and knows how to help us. He is our true Savior in every way. Christmas is when God tore open the veil and sent the Holy of Holies down to walk among us. Peace and light entered through a woman in a stable in Bethlehem. It was the beginning of a path which led directly to the cross, and there is no Easter without Christmas. This day that we celebrate marks the beginning of our Passover. So celebrate and celebrate big. Love your family. Give good gifts. Appreciate the beauty that God has graced us with and feast. Always remembering the awesome moment where God turned all of human history on its head and intervened on our behalf. The greatest story ever told, the long-awaited Messiah and the redemption of all mankind is here for us to celebrate. I'm going to leave you in this last podcast with the lyrics to one of my favorite hymns, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. What should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. This is the true reason for the beauty of our celebration. Hold Christ in your heart and feast and celebrate in remembrance of this great, awesome love. Merry Christmas and thank you so much.